0: Good morning. I uh, was reading a survey this past week, and um, I thought to myself, this fits a perfect introduction to my sermon, in which the title of our sermon is, What Do You Believe About Jesus? And this survey um, was really, really interesting. So I thought we'd have some fun together this morning and take part of this survey, just real briefly, just to kind of see how you guys do with these questions. You Ready? Someone say yes. Okay. They're true or false questions. Here we go. First one Jesus was a great teacher, but not God. Now, wait, hold on, hold on. I'm glad you're eager here, but before I give the answer, I want you to see 52% of Americans said true. Worse than that, 38% of evangelical Christians said true. You want to reconsider your answer? Good, because you're right, it's false. Isn't it alarming, 38%, I mean, this is bad enough, but 38% of, you know, evangelical, church-going Christians. Wow, gets worse. Second question, Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. True or false? Good for you. 70. Someone go, what? Come good, good, good. 70% of evangelical Christians said true? It's just false. Third question When he lived on earth, Jesus was human and committed sins like other people. I, was he not human? Uh, yeah, but did he commit sins? No, no matter whether 48% of American adults say that's true, it's not true. Last question Beliefs about Jesus are a matter of personal opinion, not objective truth. True or false? 40 or 38% of evangelical Christians say true. Evangelical Christians, it's false. See, it's it's bad enough that our country is clueless about Jesus. And that's troubling. It means we need to do a better job of telling people about Jesus. Amen. We need to do a better job of evangelizing our culture. But it's not just troubling, it's alarming that so many evangelical Christians are are wrong about Jesus. And that is one of the big reasons why I'm launching a new series today on the Gospel of Luke, which is all about Jesus, which is what we're all about here. I wonder um, if there's anybody thinking to themselves, you know, we just talk about Jesus all the time here. Now we're gonna study the Gospel of Luke, really? I hope no one's thinking that because our mission is leading people, right? You all know this? The mission of our church, leading people in the adventure, and I like to expand it, to follow Jesus, to learn from Jesus, to become like Jesus. Leading people in the adventure, becoming like Christ. That means we start with listening to him, following him, learning. So we need to get into a gospel to learn the truth about Jesus. Now, you know, I, I checked the last time that we preached through a gospel was the gospel of John. We started in 2015. That was, what, seven years ago. And, and since then, we've, we've been preaching through the Bible. We preached through 2 Timothy, 1 John, Habakkuk, Ephesians, Ruth, 1 Thessalonians. And you know, there's things about Jesus in some of these letters, not Habakkuk or Ruth, but you know, this is good stuff. It's the Bible. But it feels to me like it's time to get back to Jesus, amen? And you know, if you're thinking to yourself, so you know, we did John, you know, again, seven years ago. So is this just a rehash of John? Do I really need to come? Because I was here when we did Gospel of John, so I could just take a break? And no, 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 not, not at all. In fact, let me just real briefly contrast Luke and John, both great books but this will help you see why I'm kind of excited about Luke, is that Luke focuses more on the humanity of Jesus, John on the divinity of Jesus. They're both gospels. We need both of them. And sure, John talks about his humanity and Luke talks about his divinity, but Luke focuses more on his humanity, John on his divinity. In Luke, you get a lot more teaching, whereas in John, it's more of a focus on miraculous signs. Important. 24 parables in Luke, Did this surprise you? There's not a parable of Jesus in the gospel of John. And the kingdom of God, which is a huge, significant theme in Luke. 31 times it's mentioned, kingdom of God, twice in John. We wanna know about the kingdom of God. How about this? Individual people are more focused on in Luke, whereas John wants to talk about theology and symbols. Do we need theology? You better say yes. Okay, (laughs) but... This is just a contrast between the two foci of these two gospel writers. And speaking of individual people, Luke talks a lot more about women. There's stories about women where John, you know, mentions women here and there, but it's a lot about men. Um, the marginalized, the poor, the outcast. Luke really sees people like Jesus. He, he's, when he hears the stories of Jesus, he wants to include the stories of the marginalized whereas John keeps talking about the Jewish leaders over and over and over again. But probably my favorite contrast between these two is that Luke is more focused on how disciples live, whereas John is focused on what disciples believe. Very, very important. But I love the focus on how do I live this out that Luke gives us. And So as you see those, you're like, oh man, we definitely need to study Luke along with John because there's so many things that Luke focuses on that John completely ignores or that Luke um, gives us an insight into that John doesn't even talk about. For instance, I'm going to put up on the screen some things that are only in Luke, not in Matthew, not in Mark, not in John. And two of these are, are you know, people's favorite parables, the parable of the Good Samaritan and Prodigal Son, only in Luke. You want to study Luke now? Say yes. Okay. Uh, some more of these parables. These are only in Luke. And then how Jesus lived in the power of the Holy Spirit. Luke is going to help us see that. The story, one of my favorite stories in the whole Bible, the story of the road to Emmaus. These two people um, on resurrection day didn't realize Jesus had been raised from the dead. And it's one of the most amazing stories as Jesus meets with them. And that's only in Luke. It's only Luke tells us that story. So if you're not already excited, turn to Luke chapter one and stand with me and we're going to read the whole gospel this morning. It's going to be great. Oh, I'm sorry. The screen only says four verses, so good for you. Uh, we will read through the gospel of Luke in, in time, but um, I'll be reading out the New International Version. And um, first four verses of Luke. This is going to be great. Here we go. Many have undertaken... Let me just pause there. Luke, When Luke refer, uses this word many, he's referring to other gospel writers most likely Matthew and Mark, not John, because John hasn't been written yet, but not only Matthew and Mark, but other people who wrote down some sayings of Jesus, maybe some stories of Jesus, and they just began to circulate. And um, as these little brief little synopses of the sayings of Jesus and the miracles of Jesus started to circulate, you know, people began to wonder, well, what's, you know, what's the story of Jesus? And so Matthew and Mark wrote theirs, but Luke is like, there seems to be a need for some other. Some more teaching and i 'll tell you why many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us he 's talking about Jesus just as they were handed down to us significantly to those who were from the by those who were from the first eyewitnesses they were with Jesus Luke apparently never met Jesus or saw Jesus teach but he apparently interviewed these eyewitnesses and servants of the word, servants of the words of Jesus. And with this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account. Um, we find out in the writings of Paul that Luke was a physician. So he's really focused on details. We'll see that. in order. And so he's, he's giving us Um, it's not a chronology. The gospels are not a chronology, but he gives us a a pretty good chronological order. He cares about the order of theology. He cares about the order of the events that happen. And so he's giving us an orderly account, not just kind of slipshot all over the place. For you, most excellent Theophilus. We'll come back to this guy in a little bit. So that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Let's have a seat. We'll stop right there. And this underlines to me, especially this last phrase, why the gospel of Luke is so valuable, which is in your notes, and which is why we should study. This phrase at the end of the, of the verse four, or the, all of verse four, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Now in Greek, this, verses one through four is one sentence. Don't think poorly of Luke. He's not English, he's Greek, and that's the way they wrote. They wrote long sentences. But we've broken it up into four verses, and the, the, the point, you know, the so that. Why did Luke write this? Why is he, you know, writing this book to Theophilus and to us? So that we may know the certainty of the things we've been taught. Our survey this morning showed us that we don't have certainty. And I wish there was more people who knew about Jesus in our world, in our country, but I'm really, um, is the word upset? I'm really troubled and alarmed by the lack of clarity about who Jesus is in the church. I hear people say things all the time. I'm like, Jesus never said that. Well, no, read, read your Bible. Not only is there not certainty about who he was and what he said, there's downright wrong beliefs being circulated about the things that Jesus said and did. So just like in Luke's day, where there's gossip and confusion and misunderstanding, so today, because some people would exaggerate the things that Jesus said and did, as if what he did wasn't enough. And so Luke's like, man, we got to cut through all that. And we, we need truth. We need certainty. So write down that word truth. The word certainty means to be clear, to be certain, to, to, to see the truth. And then when you talk about the certainty of the things you have been taught, we're talking about Jesus, the things that I've taught you, the things that you've heard about Jesus. And this is something I wanna just camp on for a second. In fact, I, I wrote my own little survey just to, to test a little further. Do you know the truth about Jesus? Just a couple questions. Let's just try. Jesus was part God and part man. True or false? Hmm. I'd say a little bit louder. Jesus was part God and part man. And we know he was, we know that you know, he's God and, and we know that he's man. What, what's the percentage? 50%, 50, 50, what is it? I'm not clear what you are saying. This is a false statement. Jesus is not part God and part man. He's fully God, fully man. And so some people who hear that, they're like, well, how, how can that be? He, he, he can't be 100% plus 100% is 200%. Well, he, he, he was amazing. It's a miracle. But the Bible teaches us And we need to be clear about the truth about Jesus. He's fully God and fully man. Couple more questions. In order to truly follow Jesus, you must sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Just so you know, Jesus said that. Is that, so it must be true, right? Well, see, this is one of the examples of people who take something that Jesus said and they pull it out of its context. now, not a lot of people say this and for sure, not a lot of people are obeying it, but this is a true statement of what Jesus said to one person, it's in Luke 18, where this guy who was a rich young ruler comes and says, you know, what do I need to do in her eternal life? And Jesus talks to him and in Luke 18, he says to him, okay, you lack one thing. You, you know a lot, good for you. You've done a lot, good for you, but you lack one thing. And then he says, go sell everything you have. But that's to that guy. So, this is a false statement. This is, this is not something that Jesus said to everybody who said, I want to follow you. And so, it's, you think, well, Jim, is it really that matter? Yes, it matters that we're clear about what Jesus said and what, what he said means to us. This is why we have a class that we're starting called How to Study the Bible that you need to learn how do I interpret the Bible? It's, you need to know what he said, but you also need to know what he meant. Oddly enough, cults will quote Jesus word for word, but twist it to mean something other than what he said. Good for you that you know, if you do, what Jesus said, but what did he mean? and, And how do I apply that to our life? Gospel of Luke's gonna help us with that. Here's another one. After Jesus was resurrected, he appeared, first of all, To the woman, did I hear somebody snicker? To the woman he would eventually marry, that's Mary Magdalene. I wish there were more people snickering. Are you snickering, Clay? Thank you, thank you. Sadly enough, I'm hearing this again. It's not just Dan Brown who wrote his book about the Da Vinci Code and his his movie was so famous and people were like, oh, I didn't know. Jesus and Mary Magdalene had a thing going on. You didn't know because it's not true. And that was, what, you know, 15, 20 years ago? And so, I don't know, 10 years ago maybe, but it's recirculating. And people who know a little bit about the Bible, a little bit about Jesus, and go, hey, yeah, Mary Magdalene, yeah, I, I, why? I guess I didn't realize that they got married. They didn't. It's false. It's, it's like the more biblically illiterate we are, the less we are able to go, wait a minute, that's not in the Bible. Why do you believe that? Well, I saw it on the internet. Oh, oh okay, I forgot. You, you're right then, because if it's on the internet, it must be true, right? I read it in Wikipedia. That's a good one. <laughs> so, no, it's not true. So we, we need to know the truth about Jesus as we walk the gospel. Look, it's gonna help us to know the real Jesus. See, you, you can't follow someone that you not, aren't clear about. We want to know the truth about who Jesus is. We'll talk some more about some other things about what Jesus said, but let's, let's, first we want to get clarity about who he is. In our, in our prayer time before I came up to preach this morning, our, the prayer team that was praying with me, one of them mentioned that question that Jesus asked, who do you say I am? might be the most, que- most important question in history. Who do you say Jesus is? It may be the question you get asked when you die and you stand before the, the great judgment seat or you, you stand before Jesus himself and he asks you, who do you say I am? A great teacher? A great prophet? Do you, do you know that I'm Savior and Lord of all. and Have you submitted your life to me? See, why submit your life to a merely a prophet? You shouldn't. There's been lots of prophets that you shouldn't submit your life to. Why submit your life and worship a teacher? Jesus was a teacher, the greatest teacher, but he's not just a teacher, as we saw in our first question. He's also God. Who do you say I am, Jesus asks us. And I think getting past that question, since we're studying the gospel of Luke, I think we should also ask ourselves the question, well, how do you know, Luke? Why, why should I believe you? I mean, you're not even one of the 12. You interviewed eyewitnesses. Well, I hope you're, if you're asking that question either now or later, that's a good question to ask. And I'm going to take you back to this text again and point out three things, uh, phrases. Luke says that, I interviewed eyewitnesses. Remember, he's Luke, the physician, Paul tells us. So um, it's important that he gets the facts right. His whole job, his whole livelihood is based upon diagnosing correctly, identifying things correctly, being accurate. So this is one of the great things that we see about Luke is that he gives us details that nobody else gives. And we're like, dude, this guy's a detail guy. Don't you want a doctor? Who's a detailed woman or a detailed guy? You don't want a doctor who goes, Well, it sounds like it could be, or try this. No, you want a doctor who's, who knows their stuff. And Luke says, I know my stuff because I've interviewed eyewitnesses, which is why in a couple of weeks we'll get into Luke chapter two and we'll see details as we lead up to Christmas. We'll see details about the birth of Jesus that the only way we could have known this is for. Luke to have interviewed his mother. And so clearly, Mary, was well, the mother of Jesus, was a person that Luke interviewed, and, and the other disciples, and Mary Magdalene. And, and so he's got all these eyewitnesses interviewed, and uh, these people who were servants of the word, the early preachers and deceivers, the uh, uh, teachers of the word, the, the apostles. And then he says, with this in mind, I've, I've researched carefully but not just carefully, everything. So you can, this isn't in your notes, but you might, if you wanna write this down or just kind of pay attention to it. We can trust what Luke says. We can be clear about what he says because it's verifiable. I've talked to witnesses. It's reliable. I've carefully, like a doctor, investigated. And I've been thorough. I have investigated everything. You can trust what I'm saying amidst all the uncertainty Against amidst all of the little stories about Jesus that you're not sure are really true, like one of, the sto- one of my favorite stories is, is in the Gospel of Thomas, where the Gospel says that Jesus, when he was a little guy, uh, got bored one day and made some birds out of mud pies, you know, formed and, and then, you know, made them look and then touched them and they came alive. And he just did this little miracle. People love that story because it just sounds so fantastical. It, it belongs in a movie about some Disney thing, but it's not about Jesus because people read that and went, that's not what Jesus was doing. It's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John didn't tell us that. That's not one of the canonical stories. It's not true. And so if you're living in a first, second, and third century, you're like, well, I don't know. I, mean, I wasn't with Jesus when he was a little boy. Maybe he did turn mud into birds. So how do we how do we know these things? Again, this is what Luke is saying. I want you to have certainty about the stories you've heard, about the things that you've been taught. In fact, let's let's camp on that word "taught." We need to be clear about what Jesus taught. Um, let me let me put up some sayings. That um, and just um, one more one more little quiz for you. One more little survey. Which one of these sayings was taught by Jesus? I've got, what, um, five of them. Which one of those was taught by Jesus? We want to be clear about what he taught. God helps those who help themselves. You have to love yourself before you can truly love your neighbor. All men are created equal. God will not give you more than you can handle. Money is the root of all evil. What do you think? Did I hear somebody say none of these? You're right. Surprises people, you know. Come on, where where does mercy come from? That's the end of the Declaration of Independence. (laughs) Some people, whatever. (sighs) I hear this one all the time God helps those who help themselves. That is not in the Bible, nor is it a good summary of what the Bible teaches. Here's a really popular one, number letter B today. Hey, before you can love your neighbors, Jesus said, Love your neighbor. And he said, love your neighbor as you love yourself. So what that means is you should love yourself first. That's not what it means. That's not what Jesus is saying. That's the American smorgasbord, what I like to call the golden corral Jesus version of Jesus. You know, I just kind of know a little bit about Jesus and I take some other things that I like about being American and some other things about, you know, some mystical teaching and blend that in with my own narcissistic, you know, concepts. And, And I come up with this idea that... Somehow Jesus is implying that I'm supposed to love myself. No, what Jesus is saying is, you already love yourself. I mean, everybody does. So so love your neighbor as you love yourself. Do you take care of yourself? You feed yourself. Feed your neighbor. That's, That's what he's saying. He's not saying you should love yourself, but I keep hearing this. How about letter D? How many times do you hear this? A lot of you think this is in the Bible that God won't give you more than you can handle. (laughs) Not only is that not true, but it's 100%, 180% opposite. God will sometimes give you more than you can handle. So you'll learn you're not God. You need him. Absolutely, he will give you more than you can handle. The Christian life can't be lived in our own strength. And how do we learn that? by getting in over our head, by learning, boy, I shouldn't have tried to do that in my own strength. I do need God. But this is that folk theology that's so dangerous. What's the antidote for that? Read the Gospels. Can I get an amen? What did Jesus actually teach? We need to get back to what he said. When well, you said, well, he said letter E. I know that's a trick question. It's, he actually did not say that money is the root of all evil. Some of you know, what did he actually say? That the The love of money. Well, it's just a couple words, but it changes the meaning. So whether it's a flat-out lie or whether it's just a misunderstanding or whether it's just a twisting of words, I, I could give you all kinds of examples. We need to be clear about what Jesus taught. Because following Jesus in our day, 2022, must be rooted in what Jesus did in his day, first century scriptures, the the gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what they inspired by the Holy Spirit, record what Jesus said and did and taught. See, we talk a lot about discipleship here at Church Open Door, but if, if we don't have clarity about what Jesus actually taught in his day what he actually did. Then our whole foundation of discipleship is shot. So this language about what he taught, I want to camp on that a little bit because Luke uses a word here that's a specialized word. He could have used other words that describe teaching like "didasko," gets used throughout the Bible. It's a really important word. The word means teaching. Mean, you know, uh, uh, the verb form, to be taught, very important. But Luke doesn't use that general word. He uses a specialized word that is the word catecheo or catechesis. You recognize that word as the base of catechism. Those of you who are Catholic, you're like, oh. <laughs> you've got the shudders. You're like, oh, I hated catechism. It was so hard. So funny, I was talking to my wife about this, and she was raised Episcopalian the first nine years of her life. And in the Episcopalian church, Catholic church, Lutheran church, and churches like those, they have catechism, different kinds of catechism classes. And Andrea, my wife, loved those classes when she was a kid. And um, the way it was kind of pick, you know, cast in it, it was that if you take this class, and she said, I liked it because all my friends were there, not because she was a budding theologian but she is, but she she, she looked because of all the class, of all the people that were there, but she said also, this is so funny, I just laughing when she said this, also because when you got done with the class, then you could get the wafer and the, the wine, and so she was like, I want the wafer and the wine, and so I loved it, but unfortunately, her mother, who was Episcopalian, died when Andrea was, when Andrea was nine, and her dad never took her back to church, and so that's tragic for a lot of other reasons, but for sure, she missed church. She loved learning about Jesus as a, as a little kid with other kids. But, you know, maybe you have a bad taste in your mouth because catechism was boring and, and you know, it's just like, oh, I got to learn all this doctrine. I got to learn all this stuff. It's not meant to be boring. It's actually a biblical concept. Luke's the first one to use that word. And catechism is, is, refers to a specialized um, focus on a particular kind of teaching, and it's the word for Christian teaching about the Christian faith for lifelong discipleship. That was the goal. That's that's the you know the word itself means to, to echo orally. So so that you speak um, and echoing your teachers. They teach you something, and then they ask you a question, and you echo back. to echo. We get our English word, echo, from that. So you echo back the truth to your teacher. I also like that it, 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 we are to be an echo of the life of Jesus. Isn't that cool? That, that we, we echo the words of Jesus in our generation. We echo the life of Jesus in our generation. We're an, hopefully an accurate echo of what Jesus said and did. That's all based in that word. But it's the idea that we want to be clear about what Jesus actually said and did and what he actually taught As we live as disciples, from the very begin, from the very beginning, the early church grasped and understood and taught the importance of teaching about discipleship. And that's our next reason for why the gospel of Luke is so valuable, because it helps us see the meaning. We see what discipleship looks like. Remember I said how Luke helps us see how we live as disciples. And so here at Church of the Open Door, we're we're always talking about discipleship. It's it's absolutely critical that you see this is not something that we came up with, that Pastor Jim just really cares about discipleship. Well, he does. I'm talking about myself in the third person. I do, but it's because the early church cared about it because Jesus taught his disciples and our biblical illiteracy in America and in the church is killing us. It's actually sending some people to hell because we don't worship in America the real Jesus. And as we saw from our survey, we don't have clear teaching about Jesus. So even though we do talk about Jesus a lot at Open Door, you can never talk about him enough and you can never focus enough on the gospels Because Paul talks about Jesus, but the Gospels tell us the whole story of who Jesus was, what he did, what he taught, that he went to the cross, that he died, that he was buried, that he was raised from the dead, all these things that just are the foundation. And then beyond that, how do I live my life as a disciple? You know, we're in this thing called the decade of discipleship. And I got to tell you, there was some early excitement about, from some of you about being disciples and making disciples and getting into discipleship, but it started to fade a little bit. And I wonder if one of the reasons that some of you have faded in your passion for discipleship is that you, even though you know a lot of facts about Jesus, you're not intimately acquainted with him. And so because you're not intimately acquainted with him, you just know some information about him, There's no passion. There's no no urgency. Because the the more you know Jesus, not, not, not about him, which is important to know about him, but the more you know Jesus, the more that should stir Holy Spirit passion in you. For you to be a disciple and to make disciples. So that's another reason why we're diving into the gospel of Luke. And I told you we would come back to this guy, Theophilus. Luke is probably discipling Theophilus. It's, and I, I'm not making this up. It's what other scholars see. And I'll show you from the text here what I mean by this. Theophilus is not a Jewish name. It's a, it's a, it's a Roman name, a Greek name. And the, it's a compound word. The name means, to Phyllis means love or friend. And Theo, Theos means God. So the name means lover of God or friend of God. And I love the fact that it's it, it's it's a Greek name, it's a Roman name, because that helps us remember that also Luke was a gentile, and he's now discipling this gentile, teaching this gentile, and actually writing a discipleship book for him. Because I want you to be, I've written this thing down so you can be clear, so you can have the certainty of the things you've been taught. I've taught you orally, I've preached, I've I've taught, I've sat down with you, but. But Theophilus, if you're going to take this discipleship thing seriously, there's some things you need to study. There's some things that I want to write down for you so that you can read them again and again, so you can meditate on them, so they can form your thinking. As important as what I've taught you orally, Theophilus, it's, it's even more important that you be able to go back again and again to to the original, go back and again and again to what I actually said, to remind yourself. Because the old telephone game can, can happen in any generation that, did he really say? Now, it would have been harder in that generation because, I don't know if you've ever heard this before, but it was an oral society, O-R-A-L, meaning that they, they, they told the stories of God. And they told the stories of the nation of Israel. And they told them again and again and again. And when Jesus came, they told the stories of Jesus. And they would repeat them over and over. And if you got them wrong, you would get disciplined. So today, um, you know, we are not used to being oral listeners. We're more focused on seeing and watching videos. and, and, And even, you know, some people still love to read. But in that generation, people didn't have books. And so it was rare for someone to have their own copy. And so they told these stories orally and they listened to them and they repeated them and they listened to them and repeated them and listened and repeated and they kept correcting until they got them straight. But as important as that was, Luke says, I want to write things down for you so you can study them. Why do we have Bible study at Church of the Open Door? Why do we have classes that teach you how to study the Bible? Why do we keep talking about how do I interpret the Bible? What does it mean to ask, analyze, and apply? This language that we use throughout our church to help you learn the skills to study the Bible because God chose to write, to have the Bible written down so we could study it, so we could be clear, not have to just go on what we think we heard. But there it is, it's been written down. And again, Luke says, I talked to all the kinds, all the eyewitnesses. I carefully investigated, I I checked out everything before I wrote down what I want you to know. And that helps me because Luke was the first Gentile who, again, non-Jew, who wrote the story of Jesus that happened, you know, at this point, probably 30 years ago. It's in a different land, it's in a different time, it's in a different culture. Luke's writing in a Greek and a Roman culture. He's not, it's probably not in Israel. And I just brought, I just went, took a, a trip to Israel with 30 people. And we, we walked where Jesus walked. It was incredible. We stood on the Sea of Galilee, all 30 of us. Well, actually we were in a boat, but it was, we we're still standing on the Sea of Galilee. It was pretty cool. And we, we, we learned what Jesus said in the places that he taught them. It's so amazing. But we don't live in Israel. And most of us aren't Jews. Maybe a couple of you are. I don't, I don't know. I don't know everybody. But, but most of us are Gentiles, non-Jews. Don't live in Israel. It's a completely different culture. It's a completely different time. And I, we've got to learn how to, you know, live as a disciple of Jesus in a different time, a different culture, a different country, and in a way that is, that is relevant to today. And Luke Helps us do that because Luke was the first one to write to people like us about that Jew named Jesus who lived in that Jewish country called Israel with all their customs. So Luke explains things to us like a Gentile needs explained. explain. It's, it's just so cool. He helps us know what disciples are supposed to know, what we're supposed to believe, what we're supposed to do. He, 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 he lines all this stuff out for us so we... Don't have to be confused about what am I supposed to know as a disciple? And what am I supposed to believe as a disciple? That's why he wrote. But maybe most importantly, what is a disciple supposed to do? Because the truth is, I know this about a, a number of you. There's a number of you, I'm looking at you right now, who know a lot about Jesus and you even know Jesus, many of you are Christians, you know Jesus, and you know about Jesus. You've studied your Bible. You know what to believe. Way to go. But the truth is, many of you have not moved to doing what Jesus did. I'm so glad you know your Bible I'm so glad you know about Jesus. I'm so glad that you have your theology right, many of you. You believe the right things. But what good, Jesus would say, what good is is knowledge and belief if it doesn't affect what you do? How many times did Jesus say, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Don't just be hearers of the word, but also doers of the word. And what did Jesus tell his disciples to do? Well, many things, but the last thing was go make disciples. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands because it would be embarrassing. But how many of you who know Jesus, who are following Jesus, who believe the right things about Jesus, who would call yourself a disciple of Jesus, are making disciples of Jesus? It would be embarrassing if we, already, if we, if we asked for a show of hands. And I'm here to say to you, if you're not making disciples, then you are not following the biblical concept of discipleship. Because disciples are not just people who follow Jesus. They learn from Jesus to become like Jesus. And Jesus made disciples. We're not supposed to be disciples. We're supposed to be disciples who make disciples, who make disciples. Who make disciples. So the, the people that we are making, the disciples we're making, they should be making disciples. That's what's supposed to be happening. That's what Jesus commanded us to do. So way to go if you know and believe, but what are you doing? I could finish right there because that's like, whoa, heavy. But let me end with a third point by going back to verse one that I I skipped over on purpose. I love doing this. Verse 1, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. I skipped over because I wanted to say for last this word fulfilled. It's a cool word. You would think that Luke would say, I, 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 you know, many people have, taken to, have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that happened among us. The things that occurred. Um, the things that were said and done he uses one of these specialized words, the word fulfilled, which is a word that, that implies there's been a promise or a prophecy made here, and now it's fulfilled here. It's a powerful word. Things that get fulfilled are things that have been promised or prophesied. And what Luke is giving us a sneak peek in in the very first verse is where we're going to go for the rest of this series. Is we're gonna look at the promises that Luke is gonna help us see. I call them the promises that change the world. That's the, the sermon series we're in. that I'm launching on the Gospel of Luke. For four weeks, we're gonna focus on the promises that changed the world. Now, there's a lot of promises that are made. Maybe you made a promise to your spouse, way to go. It changed your life, but it didn't change the world. How many promises have been made and fulfilled that literally changed the world? The Bible ones. And there's tons of them, but Luke's gonna walk us through a series of them. And and I'm gonna pull these out beginning next week. Well, I'll just pull out a couple today, but more into it next week. Well, I'll explain what all these little symbols mean. But what I want you to see is that Jesus, and what Luke wants us to see is that Jesus it's not just a, a guy who lived, who lived an amazing life, who died for you, who was raised from the dead, all amazing, wonderful things. But all that that happened was a fulfillment of the things that God has been promising for thousands of years. This idea of what Jesus said and did, it was all strategically and intentionally fulfilling the promises of God. Jesus fulfills the promises of God. And remember when I told you at the beginning of the sermon, one of my favorite stories is the road to Emmaus. It's at the the very end of Luke's gospel. And it's the day, it's resurrection day. Jesus appears to some people, but only a few. And then the Bible, Luke tells us that there's these two people walking to this little village about seven miles from Jerusalem, and all of a sudden, Jesus shows up. Just like the resurrected Jesus, just bam, shows up. He's not bound by space or time, and they have this conversation. It's an amazing conversation. Then he reveals himself, and then disappears again. This is all in the Gospel of Luke. And these guys freak out and they run back to Jerusalem, join up with the apostles and say, we saw Jesus. I mean, he, 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 he. they're just blittering all of themselves. Just, you know, he was there. He broke the bread. We saw him. He was telling us all these stories. And he was, you know, opening up the scriptures. to us. It was amazing. And I just, wow, you know. And then all of a sudden, as these two people are spitting and shouting and trying to tell the story, Jesus shows up with the rest of the disciples and those two. <laughs> they all start freaking out, and Jesus says this. Whoops! It's Luke 24:44. It's missing. Here's what he says: Everything must be fulfilled, Jesus, that is written about me in the law of Moses, the teaching of Moses, the prophets, and so basically what we call the Old Testament. And Jesus walks them through. Here, here's just a couple of the promises that Jesus fulfilled: the promise of deliverance and freedom, the promise of redemption, salvation, the promise of forgiveness, Messiah, kingdom, resurrection, eternal life. all these promises and more, they were made in the Old Testament, and some people saw them and some people didn't. Some people said, "Well, that makes sense here or there." but nobody saw that they all were fulfilled in Jesus until Jesus began to teach, "This is me. I'm the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. I'm the servant of the Lord of Isaiah 61. I'm the servant of the Lord of Isaiah 40, 41, 43. I'm the guy in Genesis 3. I'm the guy that's described in in the laws of Moses. I am the fulfillment, me personally. I'm the fulfillment of all the promises of God. And just so you don't think those are just promises for the Jews, write down in your notes that God has made these and more promises Promises to you. And we'll we'll see some of these over the time that we go through the the gospel of Luke. But let me end with a promise that John tells us because it's a promise that you need every day. It's a promise that I need every day. I surprise you, here's the promise. If we confess our sins, he is faithful. That's God. He is faithful and just and he will forgive us, that's the promise. If we confess our sins, he's faithful. John goes on to say, if you try to say you're not a sinner, (laughs) you're you're, you're confused, you're you're lying, you're deceiving yourself. Here's a promise that was made 2,000 years ago and is for you and I, and this promise that John tells us about is a promise that Jesus made to John and to the rest of the disciples. So they would pass it on to us because you and I need this because we sin. Now can I show, see a show of hands? <laughs> Who needs the gospel forgiveness of Jesus Christ? Everybody should have their hand up. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We need this promise. Thank you, John, for writing it down. Thank you, Jesus, for telling it to us. But not just telling us, but being the fulfillment of that that promise. You say, what do you mean? Let me take you to the last night before Jesus died on the cross. We call it the, the last supper. They called it a Passover meal. And Jesus says in Luke 22, there's Luke again. After supper, Luke says, Jesus took the cup, that's the cup of redemption, saying, this cup, and he uses a phrase that Matthew doesn't use, that Mark doesn't use, that John doesn't use. Only Luke uses this phrase in the gospel. This cup is the new covenant. What is a covenant? It's a promised agreement. There's our word again. At the Last Supper, Jesus is making promises. He's saying, God's making a new promise, a new promised agreement it's a new covenant because God is a promising God. He's a God who makes covenant and, and takes them seriously and enters into these promised agreements with with incredible passion and urgency and sincerity so much so that Jesus says this new covenant, this promised agreement has it's been it's, it's, it's in my blood which is poured out for you. Wait a minute, I thought you said this was the night before Jesus died. It is. For Jesus, the promises of God are so true, it's as if they are fulfilled before they get fulfilled. It's as if he's already died. It's poured out, this blood. So, so, you know, just, just be clear, how did Jesus... And where did Jesus keep his promise of this covenant? Just shout out the answer, at the cross. That's where he poured out his blood for your salvation. That's where he poured out his blood for the forgiveness of sins. That's where he poured out his blood as a a covenant keeping God so that your sins and mine could be forgiven. That's where he kept his promise. I will suffer and I will die for the sins of the world that's you, that's me, A promise-keeping God. Jesus is such a promise-maker and promise-keeper that that's all he can think about the night before he dies. I'm keeping the covenant. I wish that we saw covenant-keeping half as serious as Jesus did. And I want to end our service by what we call kind of reenacting That Last Supper, reenacting this covenant, this promised agreement that Jesus made by celebrating communion in each one of our campuses. And though that promise was made two thousand years ago, you could try take this. We can trust God's promises for today and in the future because He's always kept His promises. In the past, this is just one. But whatever promise he's made for you, including this one about the forgiveness of sin, you can trust him. Will you confess your sins today? Some of you are done. I'm not done yet. Will you confess your sin today? Or will you just treat it casually? Jesus died so your sins could be forgiven. Embrace this promise. Confess your sins because if you do, he is faithful and will forgive you your sin and cleanse you, purify you from all unrighteousness. Amen? Thank God for his promises. Lord, we thank you for your promises made and your promises kept. We live in this promised agreement. We live in this new covenant. We live tasting the fulfillment of the promises that you've made. So Lord, I pray for each person listening to my voice in all of our campuses, at home, on the radio, wherever we are, we will confess our sin. We will own our sin as we come to the table we think about the bread and the cup and what it represents. And may all over this church you hear honest, real confession. Forgive us our sin, Lord. we know you will (laughs) because you promised what you say you do. So Lord, take us to that place. Take us to the cross. That place of mercy and grace. Take us to that place where you kept your promise. May we step into it today. For we pray Jesus, holy.